this is Leviticus chapter 16, verses uh, 19, 29 and 30. In the seventh month of the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls. This is actually the words for deny yourselves. And you shall not do any work. For on that day, he shall provide atonement for you to cleanse you from all of your sins before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this morning that you as our God would speak to us, that we would know more about who you are and essentially who we are supposed to be by coming here and learning from you. So today we ask that you would teach us, that we would learn, and that we would go and grow. Amen. Have a seat. So we just finished the first chapter of John, and I'm going to take a break and talk about something else this week. Uh, I don't plan to do this very much, but a couple times I, I do. We're going to talk actually about Yom Kippur. You're like, what? Exactly. Uh, next week, uh, we're back in John chapter 2. It's a great story where Jesus turns 180 gallons of water into wine. Way to go, Jesus. You know. <laughs> so, so we're going to talk about alcohol. And uh, um, you know, I'm going to tell you, beer is okay, but light beer is a sin. Okay? <laughs> That works. This is good. Get your laughter out now because my message today is pretty darn serious. And you're going to walk out of here going, wow, they just watched the movie The Passion or something. But we're going to, it's going to be great. Um, so we're going to talk about Yom Kippur. And it's kind of like, why do I do strange things like this? We talk about this holiday that nobody really knows about. Why do you need to know about it? You hear it. You see it on a calendar, but no one really cares. Unless you get a day off work from it, which almost nobody does. You know, we don't really care what it is. Some people really like theology. And so today I'm going to give you a little bit of theology uh, about what Yom Kippur is and then what the whole thing of atonement means to you and I. Uh, Christianity is and should be distinctly Jewish. And what I mean by that is it is what Judaism should have become. Okay, uh, And I believe that we, calling ourselves Christians, have lost much of our heritage because we see Scripture and Jesus and the church and history from a Western perspective that paints a lot of broad strokes over Judaism that leaves us with a lot of apathy uh, towards it. I'm not saying you should all go out and buy yarmulkes and go to the Wailing Wall and eat kosher because I don't like a lot of kosher food, but there is some history and some certain things that we would do well to remember. So today we're going to look at atonement, beginning with the holiday of Yom Kippur, and then bringing this all together. Uh, Yom Kippur is probably the most important holiday of the Jewish year. Uh, many Jews who don't observe any other holiday will observe Yom Kippur. The holiday of Yom Kippur, many Jews will refrain from doing work, uh, not just to loaf around like college guys are like, yay, a day off of work, this is great, but it is to fast, to attend synagogue, to focus on God. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Leviticus, third book in the Old Testament. We don't usually spend a lot of time in Leviticus, but this is good. This is where Yom Kippur is actually instituted, Leviticus chapter 23. How do they make the pages in Bible so thin? You know, just, yeah, whoosh, whoosh. It's like that flash paper. Don't light it on fire. It'll go up like that. Leviticus 23, starting in verse 26. It says, The Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Do no work on that day because it is the day of atonement when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Anyone who does not deny himself on that day must be cut off from his people. Wow. 
God takes this very seriously, the whole idea of atonement, ramifications. He says, I will destroy from among his people anyone who does any work on this day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, whatever you, wherever you live. It is a Sabbath of rest for you, and you must deny yourselves from the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening you are to observe your Sabbath. Okay? So Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the word Yom means day of. And Kippur means atonement. And the word atonement is this idea that is expressed of to cover or conceal yourself with something. Atonement would be that you, we cover or conceal our, ourselves with something, our sin, so that we can stand before a holy and righteous God. We are, we are covered because sin cannot stand in God's presence. So in order for us to be able to stand in God's presence, we need to be covered. For Christians, that is the blood of Christ. Uh, the fullness of atonement gets lost on a lot of Jewish people. But for them, this is what Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement is about. It's the day you set aside to afflict your soul, to deny yourself, so that you can atone for the sins of the past year. So who's atoning for their sins? Themselves. Themselves. This is the wrong idea. These, the Yom Kippur works like this. There, there's this thing called, there's these ten days. It starts with a thing called Rosh Hashanah. And it ends with Yom Kippur. And there's ten days. And these ten days are what's called the days of awe. This is called Yamim Noraim. Okay, the days of awe or the days of repentance. It's a time for introspection, a time to consider the sins of the previous year where you're like, oh yeah, I was a real butthole to that person. I need to go apologize. And you owe and you go and take care of that. And you talk to people and you repent before the days of Yom Kippur. One of the ongoing themes of this in the days of awe is there, there's this concept and whether it's biblical or not, you know, whatever, but they have this concept that there are books that God writes our names in. And he writes down who will live and who will die and who will have a good life and a bad life for the next year. Sounds like Santa. Makes a list, checks it twice, who's naughty and who's nice. These books are open, okay? The books are open on Rosh Hashanah. But our actions during the days of awe can alter God's decree. So it kind of comes down to this idea where you need to be good just for a week because maybe God's stupid. Or he's like a drunk border patrol agent at heaven going, what's going on? I don't know. You know, it's, it's kind of, sorry, I make fun of things. And it's, okay, uh, the actions, the actions that can change God's decree for you for the next year, the actions are teshuva, tefala, and sadaka. Like Neil Sadaka, if you're old enough to. It's not like Neil Sadaka. Uh, teshuva means repentance. Okay, tefala means prayer. Sadaka means good deeds, usually charity of some sort the only one of these that i personally believe have any effect is actually teshuva which means a repentance to return to what god has called us to do and be and then on yom kippur the the books are sealed they're closed and you're kind of set for the next year and so among the customs on yom kippur it's common to seek reconciliation to people that you have wronged in the course of the year which is a very good thing the talmud maintains that yom kippur only atones for sins between man and God. And to atone for sins between each other, we must seek reconciliation. Now, I believe that God pays for the sin that we have committed against others, sins committed against us, but we still need to seek reconciliation with people. Uh, another custom that is observed during this time is called Kaparat. But Kaparat is rarely practiced today. It's observed only in its true form by Hasidic or Orthodox Jews. You purchase a, a live bird, a fowl of some sort, and on the morning before Yom Kippur, you wave it over your head. Alive. So it's like, go, 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 go. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> if they can even, I don't know, whatever birds make, squawk. Every time around the lap, squawk, squawk. I don't 
And you wave it around your head, and then and you ask that that would be considered as atonement for your sins. Okay, and then you take it, you would slaughter it, and you would give it to the poor or the price of the fowl to the poor. Some Jews today actually simply use a money bag, and they'll just wave that over their head and then give it away. Most Reform and even conservative Jews have never even heard of that practice. But Yom Kippur essentially is your last appeal, your last chance to change the judgment, to demonstrate your repentance, to make amends for your sins. Okay, That's the idea of it. The Talmud which is a, it's a Jewish work that comprises a commentary on the Old Testament and oral law uh, of the Jews. The Talmud specifies additional restrictions. Uh, washing and bathing, you're not supposed to wash or bathe on Yom Kippur. Uh, some of you need it. Uh, you're not supposed to anoint your body with cosmetics or deodorant. Once again, many of us need that. You're not supposed to wear leather shoes. Orthodox Jews will actually just wear canvas sneakers under their clothes on Yom Kippur. And Converse says, thank you, God, for the... You're not allowed to engage in sexual relations on Yom Kippur. It is to be a full 25-hour fast on sunset the evening before Yom Kippur, ending the nightfall on the day of Yom Kippur. Again, this is all about atonement, all about them being able to cover themselves so they can stand in God's presence and have a relationship with God again. Atonement promotes this covering that covers your sin. Atonement was made to purify objects and set them aside for God's service in Exodus 29.36. Atonement is associated with setting priests aside for, for God's work in Exodus 29.35. But the primary connection of atonement is with sin, guilt, and forgiveness and being able to stand before God and have a relationship with Him again. You guys follow? Here we go. This is what brings us to Jesus. Uh, turn to, if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. New Testament towards the back. I'm just being helpful. You're laughing at me. You didn't even bring your Bible. Don't laugh at me. Okay. Making her look it up. Hebrews chapter 10. You can keep your finger in Hebrews because we're going to come back to that at the very, very end. Okay. Hebrews chapter 10. Starting in verse 1. Oh, I'll wait. I still hear pages turn. Hebrews 10.1. The law, now this is what was written in Leviticus. Okay. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, they, would they not have stopped being offered? If these sacrifices could have made you and atoned for you before God, then we'd be able to do it once and be done with it. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And this goes all the way back to another Old Testament concept. That this is never going to take them away. So God promises to his people that he one day will be the one that atones for us. That covers us so that we can stand in his presence. In Ezekiel 16.63, God says this. Then when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. We will not be able to say, this is, I did this. Look how good I am. We have to realize that this is not something we can do, that God has to do it for us. God promises in the Old Testament that he would do it because we can't do it ourselves. This brings us to all of God's promises about atonement for those who believe. And it starts like this. Our first parents. God creates everything good. Everything shalom. Everything is peaceful and harmony the way it's supposed to be. Then God creates man. 
Man decides, I'm going to rebel against God and do what I want to do. So man commits evil. He rebels against who God is. And since that time, it is in our nature to be evil. You think, well, I'm not evil. That's not... Uh, of course we're all evil. Two-year-olds, what are the first words that they love to say? And mine. No one mine. No, mine. Mine, mine, mine. It's like a, one of those birds in that cartoon. Mine, mine, mine. It's like a seagull. Just no one mine. And then when kids get older, you, know, it's, it, you don't ever have to teach a teenager how to disobey you. Right? It's like, oh, you're obeying me again. You better stop that. No, teenagers, <laughs> teenagers just naturally disobey because it's who we are. We all rebel. It's part of the makeup that we, we are all evil. And so God says, you know, you guys are evil, but he comes to a guy named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 so that he begins to restore relationship with people. And he promises to bless Abraham. It's like Abraham is a guy. He's got no children. He's really old. And God picks him out of people and says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you a kid. He's like, well, that'd be great. I'd really love to have one, but I'm like 75 years old and I don't. He says, I'm going to give you a kid. And this son is going to lead to a son, to a son, to a son, to a son that's eventually going to lead to my son, Jesus. Then he promises Abraham land, which becomes Israel. And he promises Abraham that he will not leave him, that God will be with him wherever he goes. And he makes these promises. And my son is going to come and he is going to atone for the sins of people. And it will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Turn to the book of Galatians chapter 3. He makes these promises to Abraham to restore relationship, to atone for us. And in Galatians chapter 3... I make a turn there so you don't just like think I'm making this up. Galatians 3.14 says this. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's you and I, through Christ Jesus. All the things in the Old Testament, all the promises to Abraham, all the future focus of the Jews, this is all about Jesus. Over one billion people on the planet Earth today claim Jesus. And it starts with one man who's really old and a barren wife who trusted God. And then Jesus comes and all nations are blessed through him. Turn to Genesis chapter 15, first book of the Bible. You and I, as you turn there, you and I, through atonement, what is called new birth, become children of that promise from Galatians chapter 3. There's, there's a time when, when Abraham, he, he, it's been a few years since God made this promise. It actually took him 25 years to get the child. So he makes him wait a long time, and he's already really old. And so at one point, Abraham's like, is this really going to happen? Is it really going to take place? Are we gonna? And so God takes him outside. He shows in the night sky. He says, Abraham, trust me. You look at these stars, this is how many people are depending upon you. You need to trust me. You will get a son that will lead to my son, Jesus. Trust me. Trust me. He will bring restored and renewed relationship. So in Genesis 15, starting in verse 8, it says, But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. What this means is there's going to be a sacrifice. In Genesis chapter 3, God sacrifices animals, covers Adam and Eve. Noah makes a sacrifice after he gets out of the ark. And this time God demand, demands one to make a point. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. I'm assuming because birds are small and kind of hard. 
hard to cut in half. But this is covenant. This is where the ceremony, where God is declaring his covenant with Abraham. Jesus is coming, blessing and promises, atonement will be fulfilled in my son, Jesus, that through your son, Abraham, is going to have a son to a son to a son that leads to my son. We don't understand covenant very well. We don't understand promise because we live in a world of contracts and warranties. We don't trust people. A covenant is when one person pledges himself to another by a visible decree. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I will fulfill what I said, even if it takes me being slaughtered like these animals. I will make sure it comes to pass. And is this what happens? Yes, it's exactly what happens. God is foreshadowing Christ's death. The whole Old Testament scriptures, the whole system that is in the entire Old Testament of the sacrificial system show what God would do to save us, to reach us, to bring atonement for us. God is committing himself to death to fulfill his words. And this is extraordinary. Abraham will get a son that leads to Jesus. Abraham says, how can I be sure? God says, I will commit myself to death to make it happen. Jesus becomes a man, dies a bloody, brutal death, so the terms of the covenant with Abraham becomes fulfilled, and all nations of the earth are blessed, and all nations of the earth can have atonement before God and have a relationship with Him again. Can you imagine God saying that He was willing to die so He could share His love with you, so He could atone for your sins, because you can't do it yourself? God is way more serious about affection, love, and devotion than we ever are. Verse 17 says this, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. This is representative of God. Those who participate in the covenant walk through the pieces. Okay? This is what will happen what, this is what will happen if I don't follow through. So you walk through the pieces to visually represent that. God is saying this will happen to me if I don't follow through on my covenant. Abraham doesn't pass through the, pass through the pieces. Only God does. And that means that God will fulfill his promises no matter what. God obligated himself to Abraham and those who follow Christ, the children of the promise, no matter what. Unconditional covenant. God says, no matter what, I'm going to save sinners. Years later, Jesus Christ, son of God, son of Abraham, comes and he walks through the pieces. Our sin and our evil separate us from God. And yet he comes and walks through the pieces to atone for us so we can humbly stand before God covered by the blood of Christ and we can have relationship with God again because God longs for that relationship. And this for Christians brings us to the cross. The cross in our world today, it is one of the most recognized symbols, whether that's good or evil, but is a far cry from a piece of jewelry or a dormant that we put in our homes. It was a symbol of a brutal and agonizing death. I'm going to talk about the cross just for a few minutes. And I'm going to warn you, it, this could be a little graphic for some people, but I think it's good for you to know. You know, the early church never used crosses. They wouldn't put them up because they believed it was too grisly or a reminder and too a humiliating remembrance of Jesus. Because the cross was all about trying to humiliate people. Uh, Jewish or more Roman historian Josephus called death on a cross despicable. He calls it despicable. Crucifixion was always reserved as the worst type of punishment for people. Uh, even in the 20th centuries, Nazis, they would use that at Ducal. Uh, in Cambodia, captured soldiers were crucified. Today in the Sudan, people are still being crucified. Crucifixion was so horrendous that we had to make up a new word to explain and describe it. The word excruciating for pain means from the cross. Excruciating. 
Persians invented crucifixion. Romans uh, perfected it. Crucifixion was always done publicly. They wouldn't take you out in the middle of a field and crucify you. They would take you down in front of the Walmart or the Santa Maria Bowl, and they would hang you up there so people could watch you die. Crucifixion was about suffocation. It was a slow, painful, agonizing death. And you would hang like this, and you would all your weight is like this, and it would slowly push everything up so you couldn't breathe. And you would have to pull yourself up, and you would, and you'd let go, and you'd go back down. And so people would start to die fast. Romans wanted to prolong the humiliation and the death. So what they started to do is they would put a seat on the cross. So people could sit on the seat and be like, and still breathe a little bit. And so people wanting to die, men wanting to die, would slide off that seat so they could die. Do you know what the Romans did? They started nailing men's penises to the cross. So they couldn't slide off the seat. It was a brutal, humiliating death. When you see pictures of the cross, and you see Jesus with a little loincloth on him, they crucified people naked because it was about humiliation. They wanted to take a long time because they wanted people to look at you in the eye. It wasn't up high like you see in the pictures. It was eye level so you could look at a man die. And they would throw things and it was humiliating and they wanted to take as long as it possibly could for somebody to die. They occasionally would crucify women. They would actually turn women to face the cross because people couldn't take an agonizing death of a woman like that. So women would face the cross. They would leave people on the cross after they died to be eaten by birds or dogs. At one point, as many as 6,000 people get crucified in a single day. Anybody? Spartacus? Right? Okay. Um, Spartacus leads a slave rebellion, and Spartacus dies on the battlefield, but 6,000 people who were following Spartacus were crucified. And they put these people up over 120 miles. Imagine, you drive from here to Los Angeles, all the way down the freeway are crosses with people being crucified on them. That's how far and long it was about humiliation. When Jesus dies on the cross, he is crucified with two other people. And yet, as Christians, including me, we call this good news. Good news. It's like, why? The Bible uses the word gospel. Good news for this. How is this good news? I'm going to put this up so you guys can see it. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Paul says this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died. Now, by itself, that is not good news. But the theological understanding of that event is deep and full. And he uses the word for to move you from the fact to its implication. He says that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's why it is good news. It is the only hope that we have ever had. This is what is called atonement. This is what Jesus made at the cross. Young, hip, cool, and I would say stupid pastors today are rebelling against this doctrine of atonement, of Christ covering us, because they shut. It's, it's too brutal. They're like, well, God would kill Jesus on a cross like that? Oh my, I, I can't. And they fight against it, and they run from it. This is something that is deep and full and valuable to any person who calls themselves a believer because this humbles you and I. This makes us say it's what he did. It makes us humble before him to the lengths he would go to save us. People trip over this doctrine because they think they're good enough, and we are not good enough. You and I need to grasp the severity of the doctrine of atonement and what it meant for God to declare us clean in his eyes. 
Hebrews 9.22 says this, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So Jesus dies in our place, our perfect lamb. That is a language of love and restoration and hope and reconciliation. Atonement at one meant, making the world right with him again. Why would God do this? Why? I love how John Calvin says this. John Calvin says the father wanted his kids back. Atonement is what weaves Scripture together. Romans 3.25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. 1 John 2, 1 and 2, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4.10, This is love, the, the cross that we look to. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and set his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And they are many. Hebrews 2.17, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, meaning Jesus became a man, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of people. We call this penal substitutionary atonement. He died to pay the penalty for our sin, for the wages of sin is death. He went to the cross, not just as our example, but as our substitute. Hundreds of years before Jesus, Isaiah the prophet declares this in Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will, set, will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is God who became a man and lived without sin. And though he was tempted in every way like you and I, in every way, he did not sin. And that is why Jesus alone can reconcile a holy God to a sinful people. He can atone for us. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In Romans 5.8, he says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still beating our spouse, while we were still smoking crack, while we were still smoking pot, while we were still neglecting our kids, while we were still self-absorbed, while we were still gossiping, while we were ignoring God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not because we were so good and he said, Oh, look, they're so good. I'm going to go die for them while we were sinners he made atonement for us so we can have restore relationship again second corinthians 5 21 god made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of god martin luther calls this the great exchange his my death for his life my sin for his righteousness my condemnation for his salvation my defeat for his victory 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Nothing is more important than the death and the life of Jesus, the cross of Christ and the atonement. Nothing. Because without Jesus, there is no eternal life. Without Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without Jesus, there is no relationship with the good and holy God. So you must understand and cling to and know the reason for his death and his life. 
Mark Driscoll writes this. He says, It is not about the subjectivity of our feelings, but the objectivity of the cross that the children of God were saved, that their sins were made to be atoned for. Am I clear? Am I getting that? In Jesus' death, he says two final things. First thing he says is, it is finished. It is finished. Uh, that's the word to tell us that. It means it's paid in full. Whatever was outstanding of a balance was paid for. Atonement was done. Jesus was cursed for us. Again, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And when that was finished, Jesus says this. Father, into you in your hands I commit my spirit. And I see that with a smile. Eyes heavenward. Jesus reconciled to God. And so were we at that moment. Turn to John chapter 10. I see I'll get you to John today. John chapter 10. I do not want you to feel pity or feel sorry for Jesus because that is condescending and disrespectful. Because Jesus says, no one takes my life. No one takes it. John 10, 18. Jesus says this. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus is no mere victim. He is on a mission to save us. And you've got to look at yourself and realize why Jesus had to die. You and I are so bad that Jesus had to die to bring us back to God. Turn back to the book of Hebrews. I told you to leave your finger in it, so I told you we're going to end there. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. This is why we're told this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In your Bible, you should circle the word joy. It's not sacrilege to write in your Bible. So go ahead and do it, okay? He wasn't a pathetic victim. He came to glorify God and save you and I. That is the point. It's not a pitiful thing. It is a glorious thing. It's sad that he had to die to atone for us. But it is a glorious thing that he died and rose for you and I. It's not about how good you are, but about how good he is. That's why every week we take communion. Because we remember that Christ's body was broken. And we take that crack and we break it and we dip it in the wine or the grape juice. And that reminds us that Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sins covers us so we can have a relationship with God again. Remember that right there. Every week, I, we offer you guys prayer because we are now able to go and stand before God and talk to Him. We tell you every week there's offering boxes in the side wall and in the back of the room so that you guys can give back to God because of what He has given to you through atonement. And every week we sing songs. And these songs are songs of atonement and mercy and grace and, and justice and the wonder of how much He loves us. And you guys also get to worship God through fellowship where you get to hang out with other atoned for people, redeemed people. And you get to go out and spread that to the world. We can have relationship with God because He is so good. And yes, you may be a crack hoe and Jesus still loves you. And you may be a banker on Wall Street, and Jesus still loves you. And you can have voted for the bailout, and Jesus still loves you. <laughs> Jesus atones for all people, no matter who you are. 
And so it is about Jesus, atonement for us. He really is that good. And you every day, every week for the rest of your life are to remember that nothing is more important than atonement that was given for you. He loves you more than you can ever know. And so you should love him back. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would learn to know what it means to love you back. That we would give you all the glory that is due you. And that we would stand in humility before you. And simply thank you because there's nothing that we could do to earn this atonement that was paid for us. God, I ask that you make us people who show other people what atonement is by how we live. That your death wasn't pitiful, it was glorious. And that your love for us is something to make us stand amazed and be in awe. Help us to be your people. A people who live and remember the depth of your grace and the goodness that you long to bring to every single one of us. And you are good. Have us be people that constantly remember your goodness through your atoning sacrifice. Amen.